because I wanted our children to see what we're doing missionally. And we, our children are taught about missions, and, and we, we focus and emphasize that a great bit with our children. But if they're down in children's church and we do the report at the end of the service, they don't have an opportunity to actually see uh, the report and, and see some of the things that we did. And so I wanted our kids to, to see that and see what their church is a part of and, and how we're seeking to actively engage lost people around the world. I'm going to invite you to grab your Bible, and if you want to find your place in Luke chapter 19, we're going to continue in our series, Living with Palms Up. We began it last Sunday, and so this is a, a series geared uh, along the lines of biblical stewardship. What does it mean to be a steward? A steward is simply a, a manager, a, an owner of nothing, but someone who manages the affairs of the master. A story has been told uh, of a particular master who was preparing to, to leave on a long journey. And so before he left to go on this long journey, he called for his three servants and he divided up his estate between them, charging his servants to care for everything that he entrusted to them while he was away. So the master gave the first servant five pieces. He gave the second servant two pieces. He gave the third servant one piece. And the servant that was given the five pieces went out and immediately traded with his five pieces and earned five more. He did business with someone else. Likewise, the servant who was given two pieces also doubled his estate. But the servant that was given the one piece did nothing with what he was giving. And so after a period of time, the master returned from his long journey and called for his three servants in order to settle accounts with them. The first servant who had been given the five pieces came in and presented his five pieces that he was entrusted with, and he gave the five pieces that he had earned. The master was pleased, and he blessed his faithful servant. The master called for the second servant, and he came in, and he presented the two pieces that had been given to him, and he also gave him the other two pieces that he had earned with it. The master, too, blessed him and sent him away. The third servant was called, and he brought the one piece that was entrusted to him along with an excuse for doing nothing with it. This wicked servant that was later proclaimed about him claimed that the master was a harsh man that, and that he feared failing the master. And so in his fear, he went and hid what was given to him and did nothing with it. The master was furious at this failure of the servant to properly manage and to properly care for the property that was entrusted to him. And so he ordered that this servant's one piece be taken from him and given to the servant who had ten pieces. He also ordered that the servant be driven from his land and exiled. The story that I just shared is a parable that Jesus spoke of and shared with his followers there in Matthew chapter 25. And in this parable, Jesus teaches that God is serious about stewardship. God is serious about the things that he's entrusted to us. He's serious about how we deal with the things that God has entrusted to us. And so if God is serious about stewardship... Ought we not to be serious about stewardship? Stewardship begins with a proper understanding of God. The reason that we went where we did last Sunday is we opened this series up and talked about God or talked about Jesus being my God and my Lord and my Savior. The reason we opened the series that way is because if we're going to understand stewardship, it must first begin with an understanding of who God is. It begins with the acknowledgement that Jesus is God and I am but a man. It begins with the understanding that Jesus is Lord and I am his servant. And it begins with the understanding that Jesus is Savior and I am a recipient of grace. That everything that I have in my life is the gracious gift of a gracious God. 
So any discussion, any study of stewardship, it must begin with a biblical understanding of God and His Lordship over all. You see, the things that you think you own, you don't own. And the things that you think are yours are not yours. We just uh, heard from the Barcelona team, and, and Jan, I believe, said that uh, she encouraged you to take your children on a mission trip. You know what I've heard over and over and over again over my years in ministry from parents? When their children want to go cross-cultural, and they want to go abroad, and they want to go on a mission trip and go to dangerous places, I've heard over and over this apprehension from parents to let their kids go and almost forbidding them in some situations to go out of fear. How dare we think that the children that we have been trusted with are our children. So when God calls our children to go, let's take our hands off and pray and support and let them go. Because they're not our children, they're God's children. It's not our money, it's God's money. It's not our house, it's God's money. It's not my car, it's His car. It's not my career, it's His career. He is Lord over all. And so as we think about stewardship, here's a, here's a statement I want to kind of whet your appetite with this morning. W.H. Greener said this, stewardship is the practice of our religion. It's the way we flesh out what we say we believe. It's the way we kind of put life, uh, put to paper what we have in our life, the beliefs that we have in our life. It's the practice of our religion. You see, when you're confronted with the glory and when you're confronted with the grace of Jesus, as I ended last Sunday, it changes the way you live. And that's what I want to speak to this morning. When you're confronted with the grace of Jesus, when you understand what the cross means for your life, that you are a sinner on your way to hell, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, that you had absolutely no hope and no way to get yourself out of your predicament. But Jesus stepped in. When, that, when you understand that, it changes the way you live. When you understand that Jesus is not just a figure on a shelf, when he's not just a philosophy, when you understand he's not just a a, a a date on the calendar that we celebrate, when you understand that he is Lord over all, it changes the way you live. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, right? Changes the way you live. And so you cannot help but live with palms up in worship. You can't help but live with palms up in a sense of adoration, adoring who he is, standing in all of his glory. You can't help but bow in your knees and surrender your lives to him because you understand how great and how gracious he is. So this morning, as quick as I possibly can, I'm going to share with you two truths in regards to how your life is changed when you encounter the King of kings and the Lord of lords. See, when I'm confronted with the glory and the grace of Jesus, first of all, I no longer live for myself. I live for someone greater. I live for someone greater than myself. And so if you've got your place there in Luke 19, I want to bring us to the story of Zacchaeus. You probably remember him as a wee little man. If you grew up in Sunday school. Verse 1. Luke tells us that he, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Who, who are they here? It's the crowd. If we go back to the latter part of, verse, of chapter 18, we would see that they there is also the crowd. And they're celebrating by the fact that Jesus healed this blind beggar. But now that they see Jesus entering the home of this wicked tax collector, they are mocking and scoffing. So verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold the Lord. Or Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you'd put your words in my heart, put your words in my mouth, and Lord, I pray that you would take your truth and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Zacchaeus here, Luke tells us, was a chief tax collector. Now, a chief tax collector was a person who, who was contracted out to the, to, the, to the Roman Empire, and he was given the authority, along with his colleagues, along with the people under him, to go and to collect the taxes from the Jews. And so, with that authority, with that ability, he was basically uh, had the, the authority to, to require any amount that he wished, as long as Rome got the taxes that they were owed. And so, the extortion done by Zacchaeus and done by his colleagues, the other tax collectors, resulted in an outright hatred for the tax collectors, and rightly so. I mean, if this is the way we operated in America, there would be civil unrest in every street in the nation. But that's what was taking place in Israel. And so the Jews despised the tax collectors because they only cared about themselves and building their own wealth. I mean, Luke here tells us that Zacchaeus was a rich man. Now, he's not speaking against wealth. He's not speaking against someone being rich, but it's how he acquired that wealth. These tax collectors were evil. They were selfish extortionists. But something began to happen in the life and in the heart of Zacchaeus. He began to realize that the things that he was living for in life only left him empty. So the more he desired to have wealth, the more he desired to have money, and the more he built his wealth and his money, he saw that he was left more and more empty. He longed for something greater. So something was beginning to stir in the heart of Zacchaeus. And then one day, Luke tells us that Jesus came to the hometown of Zacchaeus. He came to the city of Jericho. And most likely, Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus. He had heard about the miracles that Jesus had performed. He knew the stories of Jesus, but he had never laid eyes upon the Lord. And so he wanted to see who Jesus was. That's what Luke tells us. But being a small man, being a short man, he couldn't see through the crowds. So he climbed up in a sycamore tree so he could see over the crowds to see who this man was that he had heard about. But I love the fact that the story tells us here, what Luke tells us here, is that Jesus made a beeline for Zacchaeus. Out of all the people there in the crowd, all the people who want to catch a glimpse of who Jesus was, Jesus came to Zacchaeus. And as he passed Zacchaeus, the Lord looked up and he told him to come down because he wanted to be his guest. Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Come down. Let's go have lunch. In that day and age, we see here that this was a taboo. This was unheard of for a Jew to enter the house of a tax collector. You see, the Jews, even though Zacchaeus was probably a Jew himself, they viewed the tax collector as unclean. They viewed the tax collector as someone who was apostate. He was a foreigner in the land of Israel. And so it was forbidden for 
a Jew to enter the house of a tax collector. That's why they're looking here in verse 7. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, they said. It was unheard of. And yet Jesus went in. At some point during this conversation, at some point during this visit of Jesus being in the house of Zacchaeus, this little wee man came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now Luke doesn't give us the details. He doesn't give us how it happened. We don't know that if if Jesus kind of presented the four spiritual laws. We don't know if he took him to the three circles or whatever concept we may use to present the gospel today. We know, based upon what verse 9 tells us, is that at some point Zacchaeus understood his sinfulness. Zacchaeus understood his need for the gospel. He understood his need for forgiveness. And he understood that Jesus was the only hope for his life. And so he gave his life to Jesus Christ. That's indicated by how he responded. He stands up and he says, Behold, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, and the answer to that question is, Zacchaeus, you most certainly have, I will repay them fourfold. See, on this particular day, as he stood up and and exercised or or actualized his repentance, it cost him dearly. But it's an indication that he came to faith in Jesus Christ. E.E. Ellis in his commentary states that Zacchaeus' gift here of half of his estate to the poor was a thank offering expressive of a changed heart. It wasn't though his gift changed his heart as though it earned him salvation. No, it was in response to the grace that he received as he sat there with Jesus in his home and put his faith and his trust in him. Robert Stein in his commentary points out that his gift, Zacchaeus's gift here, and his desire to repay those who he had defrauded revealed in action a heart of repentance. He wanted to give back. He wanted to bless others because he had been blessed by Jesus. You see, Zacchaeus came to Jesus that day. He experienced a new life. When Zacchaeus was confronted with the glory, and when he was confronted with the grace of Christ, he found what his soul longed after. He came face to face with the God he was created to know, and that encounter forever changed this little man's life. He no longer lived for himself, but he began to live for someone who was greater than himself. He lived for Jesus. And so today, when you encounter the glory and when you encounter the grace of Jesus, it changes you. See, the things that were once so important to you begin to lose their significance. They begin to lose their grip upon your life. The things that you once would have fought to keep hold of, you now freely give up. And what are you living for today? You see, before I came to know Jesus, I was much more stingy. Now, am I fully a, 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 the giving type of person I want to be? Absolutely not. It's a progress. It, it's a work in progress here. But the Lord is opening the hands of my life. And I'm giving more than I've ever given before. I'm serving like I've never served before. Why? Because Jesus has done a work in my life. Jesus did a work in Zacchaeus' life. And it's evidenced by how he served Jesus rather than himself. There's a second truth that I want to share this morning. In, in regards to being confronted with the glory and grace of Jesus. And that is, I no longer waste my time on temporal things. I invest my time in eternal things. I invest my time in eternal things. In many ways, the change in my life, the change in your life, if you know Jesus, is best reflected in the use of your time. 
you know, as we talk about stewardship, a lot of times, most of the time, all the time perhaps, the way you can gauge how good of a steward you are is just look at your calendar and look at your checkbook. Where are you investing your time? Where are you investing your income, your resources? That'll tell you what you think about the Lord. And so my time is redeemed. It's altered. It's changed when I come into relationship with Jesus Christ. And so how I use my time is a big deal. Benjamin Franklin once said this. He said, do not squander time, for that's the stuff life is made of. I mean, time is a big deal. When you're young, I mean, our kids just left and they're down below us now in children's church. But when you were a kid, if you remember, time drug on, right? I mean, Christmas would come, and then Christmas would go, and it felt like forever until Christmas came again, right? I mean, it's like May, and you're like, good night. It's been three years since Christmas. Today, you know, those of us who have kids, Christmas comes, and then December 26 happens, and all of a sudden it's December 24th again. I don't know how that happens, but a whole year passes in one day. And so time is fleeting. Time is speeding up as we grow older. Robert Fine said the highest value in life is found in the stewardship of time. Antoinette Bosco said time isn't a commodity. Listen to this. It's not something you pass around like cake. Time is the substance of life. And when anyone asks you to give your time, they're really asking for a chunk of your life. Time is the substance of life. Of life. So when we come to face to face with the glory and when we come face to face with the grace of Jesus, it changes the way we live. Thus, it changes the way we view the things in this life. It changes the way we pursue the things in this life. No longer do we live for ourselves, we now live for Christ. Paul said in Philippians 1:21, for me to live is what? Christ. For me to live is Christ. And so when I come face to face with Jesus, it changes what I live for changes the way I use my time. Now, as I pursue Jesus, I no longer want to waste my time in the pursuit of things that don't last. Instead, I want to invest my time in the things that are eternal, the things that will last. It's here that we must be disciplined. Discipline is that ugly word that none of us really like. But godliness is the result of a spiritually disciplined life, or better yet, a disciplined spiritual life. We need to be disciplined in our spiritual life. By default, we naturally move in the opposite direction of discipline. Would you agree with that statement? But by default, we naturally gravitate away from discipline, right? I mean, some of us are a little bit more disciplined in other areas than than perhaps someone else, but then they're disciplined in another area that we're not. So some of you may be organized to the nth degree in your home, but other areas of your life are in disarray. It's the true, that's true of all of us. We've all got areas in our life that are not disciplined. What I've found in my spiritual life, as I pursue Jesus, the thing that I struggle with more and more and more is discipline in my spiritual devotional life. Right? Prayer time is probably the most undisciplined area of your life. I guarantee it's the most spiritually attacked area of your life when you're pursuing it. Because the enemy, our own flesh, wants nothing to do with that being disciplined and growing and progressing. So by nature, we are in rebellion against order because our flesh is in rebellion against God. Think about this. No one falls into a disciplined life. For example, you don't fall into healthy eating. Most of the things that are healthy don't taste good, right? I mean, this morning, we'll go to our small groups, and and, and some of you brought something to eat. None of you brought celery, I bet. 
that's a wicked, vile, nasty plant. I love all vegetables. I hate celery. So if you ever come or invite me over to your house, please don't set celery in front of me and make me feel obligated to eat it. This ain't the mission field. This is church, right? When in Rome, I'll act like a Roman, but in your home, I ain't acting like you. We don't fall into healthy eating. It takes work. It takes discipline. It takes commitment. You don't fall into a fit lifestyle. Think about this. Our bodies are inclined to ease and to pleasure and to gluttony and to sloth. It takes a lot of work to get yourself out of bed in the morning and to go to the gym and to work out. It takes commitment. It takes hard work. It takes determination if you're going to be healthy and if you're going to be fit. You do not fall into those things. Likewise, you don't fall into healthy finances. No, by default, you fall into terrible finances. You fall into spending lavishly on things you don't need to impress people you don't even like. It requires a willingness to say no to the meat. That's a little delayed there on the reaction. I figured you'd heard that one before. But it requires a willingness to say no to the immediate for the sake of your long-term goals. See, we're going to start a new, uh, a new financial uh, class here in a few weeks in September, September 10th, Financial Peace University. If you've never been through it and you know about Dave Ramsey, I would encourage you to be a part of this class. It will help you learn what the Bible says about dealing with your finances and to become disciplined in that area. No longer living for the immediate, but living for the long-term goals that are Christ-honoring. So you don't fall into any of those areas. You also don't fall into a godly life. You don't wake up the next morning and all of a sudden have everything figured out spiritually and have this wonderful Christ-honoring, Christ-loving, Christ-engaging, mission-focused life. It does not just happen. It takes work. It takes discipline. All of these areas and so many more involve the use of our time because time is the stuff in which days are made. Here's a statement on the screen. If we do not discipline the use of time for the purpose of godliness in these evil days, these evil days will keep us from becoming godly. Discipline yourself in the use of your time for the purpose of godliness. Because if you don't do that, you live in a system and you're encased in a body that is working against you every second of the day. We've got to redeem the time. We've got to use our time wisely. Here in this parable that I referenced at the outset of this message there in Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 through 30, the parable of the talents, many Bibles will title it. In this parable, the first two servants chose to not waste their time on temporal things, but instead they invested them them in things that lasted and in things that pleased their master. But the third servant He chose the immediate and the temporary over the purposeful and the eternal. And so, real quickly, what are the things that are eternal and what are the things that are pleasing to the Lord? First of all, spiritual development. development. I mean, God tells us, God calls us to love Him. We're to love the Lord supremely in our life. We're to live out His Word. So we need to have a heart and a life and a, and a, and a mindset and a commitment that says we're going to love God with every aspect of who we are. And we're going to live out His Word. And we're going to live in community with this bride. So as we pursue Jesus, we pursue our spiritual development. It involves loving God, loving His people, and loving the people who are around us. Living in community with the body 
of Christ. It involves evangelism and, spirit, and, and discipleship. You see, we need to be committed to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with lost people. If we want to grow in our spiritual life, we want to please the Lord, we will be believers who are evangelistic. See, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? We can't really call Jesus Lord, and that be a reality in our life, if we're not living out what he says. And Jesus has told us to go and make disciples. When's the last time you shared your faith with somebody? When's the last time you over coffee, you sat down with them and, and, and discipled a new believer, or discipled someone who's struggling and growing in their faith? It's the last time you modeled, intentionally modeled what it means to walk with God. It also means service and ministry, serving others and using your spiritual gifts, impacting the community for the sake of Christ. All of these things bring honor and glory and please the heart of Jesus Christ. But how many people in the church, man, I'm going to step on some toes here and I'm intentionally doing it, right? This is a stewardship series. It's supposed to step on your toes. If you don't go home with black and blue toes, I didn't do my job. How many people in the church, all you do is come and sit and soak? You know what happens when you just sit and soak? Have you ever had an old sponge? It just kind of sets up there on the countertop and soaks up water, and you never wring it out, you never use it, it just sets there. What happens to it? It sours. That's what happens to so many people, people's lives in the church. You sit and you soak and you listen and you take in and take in and take in, but you never give out anything to anyone else. So what happens in your life is you become sour, sour, sour. Serve others. Everyone, if you're, if you're in Christ, you've been given a spiritual gift. How are you using that spiritual gift to honor Jesus and to be a blessing to someone else? How are you using what God's given you to impact the community around us for the sake of Christ? I mean, what happened in Charlottesville could easily happen in our community because we're dealing with the same issues on Monument Avenue, right? But what's going to change the culture in America, what's going to change the culture in our local communities is not more social action, it's more gospel action. So how are you taking your life and investing it into others for the sake of the gospel, changing someone's life? One who seeks to please the Lord will invest his or her time in the things that last. And that servant understands that he has been entrusted with a limited amount of time in this life, and so he strives to invest it in the things that bring glory to Jesus and will remain in eternity. And so the person who understands that is not spending their life at the beach, he's not spending their, his life at the lake, he's not spending his life in the deer stand or on the bass boat, he's not spending his life behind a computer screen or whatever it may be that he enjoys or she enjoys, he's spending it for things that last and I'm not saying that we can't recreate in life God gives us times and he calls us to go and to refresh ourselves on vacation but life cannot be a vacation there's work to be done the person who is preoccupied by temporal things and the care and cares little for eternal things, reveals his true spiritual condition. You see, you can be religious, and you can be not in relationship with Jesus. Did you know that? You can be religious and not in relationship with Jesus. I can testify that for myself. You can give lip service to the gospel message and not be in relationship with Jesus. I mean, you can hear the preacher preach, and, and the gospel is proclaimed. You say, amen, brother, that's some good stuff, but never allowing it to change your own life. 
You can participate in religious worship and activities. I mean, you can sit out there in the, in the pews and sing songs with hands lifted to the sky, and you can praise with your voice, uh, just proclaiming the glory of Jesus, and it never penetrate the lostness in your heart. You can serve and go on mission trips and do things in the community, but never have your life transformed by a relationship with Jesus. You can have the things of God all around you and miss the whole thing. One of the things that I remember probably most of Barcelona is being at Sagrada Familia Basilica, the great uh, cathedral that was in the, in the uh, video this morning. And all around there in the Sagrada Familia is the gospel. It starts on the outside with the, uh, the, light, the birth and the life of Jesus. It ends with his death and passion on the backside of it. Inside it's all in it, telling the story of the gospel. And there's thousands upon thousands of people who will go through that, that, that cathedral every single day, be around the things of God, around the gospel message, and miss it completely. I felt like Paul in Athens in Acts 17 as I stood there in Sagrada that day. I felt like standing on the stage, even though they would have arrested me and put me in jail. I felt like standing on the stage and saying, hold on, you're missing it. The gospel is here. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Don't look at the architecture. Look at the king. Don't look at the walls. Look at the one they're pointing to and come to faith in Jesus. This morning, if that is you... And you've sat in church your whole life, but it's never changed your life. I would invite you to come to Christ today. I would invite you to put religious activity on the back burner and come to Jesus because it'll get you nothing in eternity. The third servant here that did nothing with what he was entrusted with was really not a servant at all. The fact that he did nothing with, with what God had given him meant that he, he was never a servant to begin with. He was never a recipient of the grace of the master. Jesus calls him a wicked servant. He casts him out at the end of the parable. May that not be of us, any of us today. See, if the only time you open your Bible is on a Sunday morning, you might, like this wicked servant, be living for the temporal rather than the eternal. I mean, if you're going to dust your Bible off on a Sunday morning because you haven't read it or opened it at all during the week, there's something not right in your spiritual life. If the only time you get down on your knees to pray is when you're in a jam that you can't get yourself out of, you might be living for the temporal rather than the eternal. If you think that living in community with other believers is an option rather than a need, and you need that in your life, you might be living for the temporal rather than the eternal. If you give to the church when you feel like you can, rather than by faith and obedience to the word of God, then you might be living for the temporal rather than the eternal. I mean, this is a sad thing that happens in church life. Sometimes you will give based upon need. I, I, I talked with a person this week about this. There's no reason you give to the church based upon need unless we're asking for a special offering for a specific task. But the tithe goes regardless if the church needs it or not. You give not based upon need. You give based upon what God has graciously given you in your life. And so this morning, if you're not giving in financially, you need to be obedient. First of all, you need to confess it as sin and repent and show repentance by starting in your giving today. It's not an option. It's obedience. That's what we've been talking about all year long. Simple obedience. So I'm not trying to get on you and make you feel uncomfortable unless the Spirit of God needs you to get uncomfortable today. But it's time that we get right in all areas of our lives. 
If your church experience is better described as a spectator than a participant, you might be living for the temporal rather than the eternal. You see, we, God not called us to be a spectator sitting in a pew and watching the show. We're not a church that's about the show. I'm not here to dog any other particular church or any type of philosophy they may have, but that, that's, that's some of the idea out there is we want to put on this wonderful show. I'm not here to put on a show for you because if I can put on a show for you that's going to attract you, someone can do it better. I'm here as, as a God-called man to, to make disciples and to grow you and develop you in your spiritual walk so that you can learn to feed yourself and feed others because this is a family of God. And so we're not here to put on a show. We're here to grow believers in Jesus Christ and make disciples. If you can't remember the last time you told someone how they could have their sins forgiven and come into relationship with Jesus, you might be living for the temporal rather than the eternal. Because God's called every one of us who know Jesus Christ to be a gospel witness. Your family needs a gospel witness. Who's going to win them to Jesus if you don't? If you don't share the gospel with your children, who's going to share the gospel with them? Well, the preacher's going to. Who's going to guarantee that they're in church to hear the preacher? Well, my grandma, she's going to do it. No, she may die tomorrow. God's put you in your children's life. To be the primary gospel witness and the primary discipler of your family. So it doesn't mean if you're 70 and you've got children who are 50 today, you'd be a gospel witness to your lost son or lost daughter. You'd be a gospel witness to your grandchildren who need a gospel witness. I mean, I'm grateful that I have children that God's given me. And I take this serious. I take it serious. My oldest daughter, I, I tell, talk to you about I think, every Sunday because it's so fresh for us. She's right there on the verge. The other day, her prayer request, and I was up here for a meeting and didn't make it home to put the girls in bed. Kara texted me while I was in the meeting Thursday night and said, here's Kara's, or this is Haley's prayer request, that she would come to know Jesus Christ, but she's just not ready yet. So she's asking all the right questions. She's inquisitive. She wants to know. She's just not yet to the point where she can say yes to Jesus. But I'm going to keep pressing it. I'm going to keep pointing her to Jesus. I'm not going to coerce her. I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm just going to do everything I can to get the gospel in front of her and allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and bring her to Jesus Christ. So this morning, how is your stewardship? How is the practice of the faith that you, you claim to have in Jesus? This morning, can you say today that there has been a time when you've confronted, you've been confronted with the awesome glory and the amazing grace of Jesus, and you are forever changed? Can you say that? Can you say this morning that you are right with God? Are there any temporal things in your life that need to be replaced with eternal things? And there's nothing wrong with it. With the things of this world, it's, it's all about preeminence. It's kind of like what we were talking about last week. I mean, Paul in the book of Colossians makes this case for Jesus to be preeminent, to have first place in your life. So we don't live for things that shouldn't be on the first shelf. We live for the, the one thing that has to be on the first shelf of our life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, if the Spirit of God is revealing things and leading you to make decisions this morning. I want to encourage you to follow the example of Zacchaeus and say yes. Here's this hated tax collector. God begins to stir in his heart. He knows something is amiss. He knows something's wrong. Jesus comes to town. All of a sudden, his attention is drawn to this man he's heard about. And Jesus sits down with him over a cup of tea. 
And all of a sudden, everything in his life, all the sin, all the wickedness, all the evil, all the extortion, all the things he's done to please himself, to make himself wealthy and prominent, goes away. He says, I've lived for everything that's wrong in this world, but I want to live for the one good and right thing. I want to live for Jesus. And he gave evidence of that through a changed life. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray this morning that as we move into a time of invitation, that, Lord, we wouldn't just amen a sermon, that we wouldn't just clap at a sermon, that we wouldn't just give lip service to a sermon. But, Father, if the Spirit is speaking to our hearts, we would respond. And God, I pray that we wouldn't care what our neighbor thinks. I pray that we wouldn't care what the person in front of us thinks. I pray that we would be so tenacious and so audacious that we would be willing to literally climb over someone else to respond in however way you're calling us to respond. The truth is, no one's going to be put out and no one's going to be offended. In fact, everyone's going to celebrate. We know that there's a party going on in heaven with the angels when one sinner repents of sin. And so, God, the church will celebrate. So may we not buy into the lie of the enemy who will whisper in our ear, even at this moment, and say, you can't go for it, you can't do that. God, may we say, yes, we will and we must. Because I have to be right with Jesus. This morning we acknowledge that it's not walking in an aisle, it's not taking a preacher by the hand, it's none of those things that makes us right with God. It's simply us coming to a place where we understand our sinfulness, we understand our brokenness, and we receive the grace and the forgiveness of a wonderful Savior. So Lord, I pray that people would respond this morning. We will get them with a counselor who can talk with them and share with them from the Word of God. God, I pray this morning that as we continue to talk about stewardship, our lives will be made whole in Jesus.